Hello everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I'm talking about 2013's much-anticipated sequel to not only one of his most legendary novels, but the source of an adaptation that has gone on to become one of the most influential movies of all time, The Shining. The sequel being the continuing adventures of Danny Torrance, the now grown-up victim of the Overlook, ghosts, and domestic abuse, who by the end of this novel will have journeyed from helpless young boy, drunken young man, to the hero known as Dr. Sleep. Now this is a big moment in King's career. It takes a brave man to go back and revisit characters that have been immortalized on page and on film. So, I mean, this isn't... I mean, it, it's one thing for him to co-author a sequel um, like he did uh, with Peter Straub when they revisited uh, the, the world of the talisman. All right, The talisman doesn't have that uh, pop culture connection or baggage or legacy, uh, if you will, that The Shining does. And, uh, you know, I mean, for, for everyone that, that liked the continuing adventures of, of Roland the Gunslinger, I mean, the Gunslinger, I mean, so The Shining, everybody knows The Shining. Everybody knows The Shining. Stephen King fans, non-Stephen King fans, everybody knows The Shining. Um, but, I, I mean, with something like the, the, the Dark Tower, I mean, even Stephen King fans don't don't know or, or, or don't care about The Dark Tower. So if, if King wrote 20 more um, books on The Dark Tower, there's a huge contingent of even Stephen King fans that wouldn't care that much. But The Shining is it's a whole other ball game. I mean, there's certain books um, that if he were to revisit would make major waves. Uh, Carrie, I imagine that if he revisited the world of Carrie, that would be big. If he went back to Christine, um, if he went back to Firestarter, if he went back to those core classics um, that, that helped shape the stand, it, you know, that helped shape who he was in, 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 the, in the pop culture uh, arena, it would make a lot of waves. But I don't think any of those waves could compare to the, 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 the waves and buzz um, and um, expectation that come from writing a sequel to The Shining. It's a big deal, guys. It's a really big deal. How do you even go back to that? Uh, I mean, thankfully, Stephen King had written a novel that allows for a sequel. I mean, if not necessarily a direct sequel, because as we know, the Overlook has burned to the ground in the in the novel. Of course, in the in the movie, the Overlook is still standing, which in of itself presents a sort of challenge because when you announce that the author of the book is going to be writing a sequel to the book itself, and the book is the source of the the adaptation. That everybody knows as as the shining starring Jack Nicholson. Everybody knows that when everyone that hasn't read the book, if they think about what happens at the end of The Shining, they think that Jack Nicholson hunts down his son, gets lost in the, the maze, and freezes to death. They don't necessarily think that um, the overlook explodes in a in a moment of redemption for this particular character. So Stephen King is, is going back and already there's a fundamental difference. The difference, of course, being the end. 
so the, there was there there was room there for him to to continue, even though the Overlook might not be standing. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you have this main character, Danny, who is the, a psychic. So what are you going to do with that? You can do anything with it, and 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 that's what Stephen King does here. And what I really have to give him credit for is he does not play up The Shining. He gives a lot of shout-outs and callbacks, uh, Easter eggs, and just gives a lot of fan moments that, that'll make you happy and make you smile. But he doesn't write... He doesn't rewrite The Shining, right? You know, uh, I mean, I think what happens a lot of the time when properties get revisited decades or just years, uh, maybe not even necessarily decades, but after an original movie or an original book comes in, there is a temptation to just sort of retell the story. Um, that doesn't happen here. And it's its own thing. It is a unique beast. It could be its own story without it having any connection to The Shining. And that's that's what makes it so interesting. I mean, let's think about the things that defined what made The Shining The Shining. We had unsympathetic monsters in the ghosts of the Overlook and the Overlook itself. You don't feel for the, the monsters. At no point are you supposed to feel bad or understand their plight or their pathos. They're simply monsters. Two, claustrophobia. You are stuck in that hotel with the Torrance family. There is um, no room for escape. There is nowhere to go. It You can just feel everything pressing in on you and all of the tension comes from that feeling of being trapped which goes with the 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 third aspect of i think of what makes the shining the shining and that's helplessness you get the sense that they are thoroughly screwed and there is no way that they're going to be getting out of this um so that's what that's where the the feeling comes from when you're reading um are, are these three major elements now where Stephen King in The Shining wrote of, um, you know, did what he did because of unsympathetic monsters and claustrophobia and helplessness. He does the exact opposite here um, with with Doctor Sleep. Rather than unsympathetic monsters, he gives us sympathetic monsters. The True Knot are still monsters. Don't get me wrong, and I will talk at length about the True Knot. But Stephen King spends a significant amount of time telling us about the lives of these parasitic creatures. All right, to the point where you understand why they're doing what they're doing. You don't necessarily agree with it. You don't think that it's great, but you understand why they do it. Um, and they are completely different from the types of monsters that we get from The Shining. Whereas The Shining was defined because of, it, because of its singular location and claustrophobia, here we have a story told across the open road. You know, our monsters are not trapped to one particular location, but use the entirety of the United States of America to um, to feed upon the innocent and the helpless. And the story is never located at one particular place. They travel, both the heroes and the villains, travel across the country. And lastly, whereas our heroes were completely helpless and vulnerable in the page of The Shining, here... They're completely empowered to the point where you kind of feel bad for the true knot because they're they're going to get messed up because our characters are that capable at, at what they do. So what he does here is completely flips the expectation that you have if you're expecting anything like The Shining because it's not like The Shining. Dr. Sleep is not like The Shining at all. 
so for anyone that does not like Dr. Sleep because it's not The Shining, I don't think that's really a criticism that you can have because what Stephen King wanted to do is tell a new story, and he does that completely, and I like how he zigs where you expect him to zag. Um, so I really enjoyed Dr. Sleep the first time around when it first came out, and I really, really enjoyed it again um, for the purposes of the reread. So I'm going to get into a lot more detail about Dr. Sleep. In the meantime, I'm going to read a listener email, and this one is from David, and David writes, Hello! I've been listening to the KingCast since the start, and I thought I'd write in because my perspective isn't what you're used to. Probably isn't what you're used to. I've only read two King books in my memory, Salem's Lot and, weirdly enough, Dreamcatcher. I've never truly been a fan of King, um, if I'm being honest. I very much like the idea of King, and I constantly tried to get into his work, but as a film snob and not a book snob, I've found it hard over the years. As a fan of film, you cannot deny his lineage. Kubrick, Shining, Carrie, Shawshank, The Green Mile, Stand By Me, my personal favorite of his adaptations, the extremely underrated The Mist. His infamous reputation among, among non-readers as a guy who can't stick landings. His love of weird, odd ideas, the Langoliers, Langoliers being the high watermark. I frustratingly love his career and hate it all at once. In a recent news about a Dark Tower movie, I decided to Google King's name yet again, looking for looking to find my way in, and I found it with you. You have completely convinced me of King's genius, and I now no longer have reservations. You are examples of his brilliant, beautiful, insightful prose, his dismantling of pure evil as a thing never to be truly feared, but, uh, but belittled and pitied, his optimism in general, the fact that his weirder ideas can be the best parts of his work. I've loved following his career and his evolution as a creative from Carrie to the Green Mile. I love tuning in each week to hear you speak about his shared universe with enthusiasm and admiration. Your framing of the stand, specifically as the modern American Lord of the Rings, has skyrocketed my appreciation of the story. It's like going to a museum, having no clue what you're looking at, and then having a helpful friend explain exactly what's cool and unique about this painting and why you need to love it. I can't wait for something as bizarre and hard to adapt and weird as The Dark Tower finds its way to an adaptation. For the record, movies are the wrong choice. A 10-episode HBO series is the way to go, Game of Thrones style. Anyway, I just wanted to potentially inform you of a different kind of fan of yours, one with an unusual perspective. Keep on keeping on, constant reader, and hey, maybe someday I'll pick up Carrie. David. David! Thank you uh, for writing in. Uh, you're right. This is um, this is probably not... I mean, this is not the, the type of email that I'm used to getting, but this is this is the whole point. I, I want other people's experiences uh, out there, so... Thank you. Thank you for writing in, and I, I, you know, let me know when you when you decide to finally pick up Carrie or any of Stephen King's books, because I, I want to see what what your thoughts are once you once you start reading them. So anyone that hasn't done so already, feel free to head on over to uh, Stephen. I'm sorry to to iTunes to write a review um, and a subscription, because that will help me out. Uh, get the the Stephen King cast out there, and if you want to share your thoughts on Stephen King, how you got to. How you got into Stephen King, how you feel about Stephen King, what your favorite Stephen King book is, what your favorite Stephen King memory is, your favorite adaptation, whatever, whatever you want it to be, feel free to write in at StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. Okay, guys, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary of Dr. Sleep so that I will have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. During the events of The Shining, Danny Torrance remains psychologically traumatized as his mother Wendy slowly recovers from her injuries. 
Angry ghosts from the Overlook Hotel still want to consume Danny to inherit his phenomenal shining power and eventually find him, including the woman from 217. Dick Holleran, the Overlook's chef, teaches Danny to create lockboxes in his mind to contain the ghosts, including that of former Overlook owner Horace Dorwent. As an adult, Danny, now simply going by Dan, takes up his father's legacy of anger and alcoholism. Dan spends years drifting across the country, but eventually makes his way to New Hampshire and decides to give up drinking. He settles in the small town of Fraser, working first as a tour at a tourist attraction, then at a hospice, and attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. His psychic abilities, long suppressed by his drinking, re-emerge and allow him to provide comfort to dying patients. Aided by a cat who can sense when someone's about to die, Dan acquires the nickname Dr. Sleep. In the meantime, um, Abra, I don't know if it's Abra or Abra, Abra Stone, a baby girl born shortly before 9-11, begins to manifest psychic powers of her own. She slowly and unintentionally establishes a telepathic bond with Dan. As she grows, the contact becomes more conscious and voluntary, and her shining grows stronger than his. One night, Abra psychically witnesses the ritual torture and murder of a boy by the True Knot, a group of quasi-immortals who wander across America and periodically feed on steam, a psychic essence produced by people who possess the shining, dying in pain. The True Knot's leader, Rose the Hat, becomes aware of Abra's existence and formulates a plan to kidnap Abra and keep her alive so she can produce a limitless supply of steam. The True Knot begin to die off from measles contracted from their last victim and believe that Abra's steam can cure them. Abra asks for Dan's help and he reveals his connection with Abra to her father David and their family doctor John Dalton. Angry and skeptical at first, David starts to believe Dan and agrees to go along with his plan to save Abra. With the help of Billy Freeman, one of Dan's friends, they foil and kill a raiding party sent by Rose. However, Dan realizes that Rose will relentlessly hunt Abra for revenge. He visits Abra's great-grandmother, Conchetta, who is dying of cancer and telepathically learns from her that he and Abra's mother, Lucy, are half-siblings with the same father. As Conchetta dies, Dan takes her diseased steam into himself. Following another kidnapping attempt that Abra foils with Dan's telepathic help, she baits Rose into confronting her at the location where the Overlook once stood in Colorado, now home to a campsite owned by the True Knot. Dan and Billy travel to the site, while Abra helps them by using her astral projection. Dan releases the steam collected from Conchetta to the remaining group of the True Knot members lying in wait, killing them all. He frees the ghost of Doris of Horace Derwent to kill the last member waiting to ambush him and Abra, and the two fight Rose in a long psychic struggle. With help from Billy and the ghost of Dan's father, they push Rose off an observation platform to her death. Before leaving the campsite, Dan makes peace with his father. In the epilogue, Dan celebrates 15 years of sobriety and attends Abra's 50th birthday, 15th birthday party. He tells her about the patterns of alcoholism and violent behavior that runs in his family and warns her not to repeat them by starting to drink or submitting to rage. Abra agrees that she will behave, but before they can finish the conversation, Dan is called back to his hospice where he comforts a dying colleague who had antagonized him in the past. Analysis with the two introductory quotes, King pretty much spells out what the story is going to be. A story of sobriety after alcoholism, which makes perfect sense as The Shining was about the dangerous effects of dependency. King has written about dependency for decades, 
and the idea of following up, following up one of his most famous books to deal with the subject with a novel about life after dependency is a brilliant move for a sequel. So, prefatory matters. Okay, so how do you begin? When you sit down to write a sequel to a story that is considered one of the scariest books ever written, whose adaptation is considered the scariest movie ever made, how do you start? Well, I think King begins with a smile on his face, because it certainly makes me smile. He writes, On the second day of December, in a year when a Georgia peanut farmer was doing business in the White House, one of Colorado's great resort hotels burned to the ground. The overlook was declared a total loss. After an investigation, the fire marshal of Jacarilla County ruled the cause had been a defective boiler. The hotel was closed for the winter when the accident occurred and only four people were present. Three survived. The hotel's off-season caretaker, John Torrance, was killed during an unsuccessful and heroic effort to dump the boiler's steam pressure, which had mounted to disastrously high levels due to an inoperative relief valve. Two of the survivors were the caretaker's wife and young son. The third was the Overlook's chef, Richard Holleran, who had left his seasonal job in Florida and come to check on the Torrances because of what he called a powerful hunch that the family was in trouble. Both surviving adults were quite badly injured in the explosion. Only the child was unhurt. Physically, at least. When I first sat down to read Dr. Sleep, I expected King to begin in the present. I didn't know that we'd jump back to the events immediately following the events of the original novel, working us towards the present. We learn of Wendy's back problems, but more importantly, King dives right back into the scares, beginning on page four, when he writes of how Dick has come to help Danny, who refuses to go to the bathroom, or to go into the bathroom, and refusing to speak about it. And what a surprise! Not only are we going to follow the life of Danny after the events of The Shining, but we're also going to follow the afterlife of some of its ghosts. I did not expect this, but the fact that King reintroduces one of the Overlook's most famous ghosts from the original novel within the first five pages was such a treat. The ghost, of course, is Mrs. Massey, the water hag, from Room 217. King writes, He woke up needing to pee. Outside, a strong wind was blowing. It was warm. In Florida, it almost always was, but he did not like that sound and supposed he never would. It reminded him of the overlook where the defective boiler had been the very least of his dangers. He and his mother lived in a cramped second-floor tenement apartment. Danny left the little room next to his mother's and crossed the hall. The wind gusted and a dying palm tree beside the building clattered its leaves. The sound was skeletal. They always left the bathroom door open when no one was using the shower or the toilet because the lock was broken. Tonight, the door was closed. Not because his mother was in there, however. Thanks to facial injuries she suffered at the overlook, she now snored. A soft, queep-queep sound, but he could hear it coming from her bedroom. Well, she closed it by accident, that's all. He knew better. Even then, he was possessed of powerful hunches and intuitions himself. But sometimes you had to know. Sometimes you had to see. 
This was something he had found out at the Overlook, in a room on the second floor. Reaching with an arm that seemed too long, too stretchy, too boneless, he turned the knob and opened the door. The woman from room 217 was there, as he had known she would be. She was sitting naked on the toilet with her legs spread and her pallid thighs bulging. Her greenest breasts hung down like deflated balloons. The patch of hair below her stomach was gray. Her eyes were also gray, like steel mirrors. She saw him, and her lips stretched back in a grin. Close your eyes, Dick Hollerin had told him once upon a time. If you see something bad, close your eyes and tell yourself it's not there. And when you open them again, it'll be gone. But it hadn't worked in room 217 when he was five, and it wouldn't work now. He knew it. He could smell her. She was decaying. The woman, he knew her name, it was Mrs. Massey, lumbered to her purple feet, holding out her hands to him. The flesh of her arms hung down, almost dripping. She was smiling the way you would do when you see an old friend. Or perhaps, something good to eat. With an expression that could have been mistaken for calmness, Danny closed the door softly and stepped back. He watched as the knob turned right, left, right again, then stilled. He was eight now and capable of at least some rational thought, even in his horror. Partly because, in a deep part of his mind, he had been expecting this. Although he had always thought it would be Horace Derwent who would eventually show up, or perhaps the bartender, the one his father had called Lloyd. He supposed he should have known it would be Mrs. Massey, though, even before it finally happened. Because of all of the undead things in the Overlook, she had been the worst. The rational part of his mind told him she was just a fragment of his unremembered bad dream that had followed him out of sleep and across the hall to the bathroom. The part insisted that if he opened the door again, there would be nothing there. Surely there wouldn't be, now that he was awake. But another part of him, a part that shone, knew better. The overlook wasn't done with him. At least one of its vengeful spirits had followed him all the way back to Florida. Once he had come upon that woman sprawled in a bathtub, she had gotten out and tried to choke him with her fishy but terribly strong fingers. If he opened the bathroom door now, she would finish the job. He compromised by putting his ear against the door. At first there was nothing. Then he heard a faint sound. Dead fingernails scratching on wood. Danny walked into the kitchen on not their legs, stood on the chair and peed into the sink. Then he woke his mother and told her not to go to the bathroom because there was a bad thing there. Once that was done, he went back to bed and sank deep beneath the covers. He wanted to stay there forever, only getting up to pee in the sink. Now that he had warned his mother, he had no interest in talking to her. His mother knew about the no-talking thing. It had happened after Danny had ventured into room 217 at the Overlook. Will you talk to Dick? Lying in his bed, looking up at her, he nodded. His mother called, even though it was four in the morning. Late that next day, Dick came. He brought something with him. A present. What makes this work is the metatextual aspect of the writing. When he writes, 
She was smiling the way you do when you see an old friend. It's the acknowledgement that we are smiling because in that strange way we can only call the monsters of our friends in horror stories. We are happy to see her after all these years. We are introduced to Wendy, to Danny, and the ghosts in the first few pages. And by page eight, we meet our savior from the first book, the eternally likable Dick Holleran. While going for a walk along the beach, King gives us the premise of the novel with Dick recapping the events of The Shining, framing the physically-powered characters as teachers and students. Dick's grandmother, um, Dick's grandmother's great-great-grandmother was her teacher. His, grammar was, his grandmother was his. He was Danny's. He says that Danny will one day be the teacher to someone else, whose life we will chronicle in this book. After a riveting story from Dick's past, Dick gives him a present, a lockbox, and we can begin to see where this is going. And I like what we're getting, and I like that we're getting an aspect of the shining, the, the power, not the book, that allows the characters to be more proactive and assertive. Also, while it feels like a little bit of a stretch in the sense that all of a sudden we need new powers because we have a new story, it also works because Danny was too young in The Shining to be able to confront the ghosts head on the way he's being trained to do here. What happens next is awesome. Just think about it. An eight-year-old kid who had survived uh, the beating at the hands of his father, vengeful ghosts, and a horrific experience by the age of five. Now, this eight-year-old enters the den of the monster like a boss on page 18 to 19 of the, well, the soft cover edition. Mrs. Massey returned a week later. She was in the bathroom again, this time in the tub. Danny wasn't surprised. A tub was where she had died, after all. This time, he didn't run. This time, he went inside and closed the door. She beckoned him forward, smiling. Danny came, also smiling. In the other room, he could hear the television. His mother was watching Three's Company. At the last moment, she understood and began to scream. Moments later, his mom was knocking at the bathroom door. Danny, are you all right? Fine, Mom. The tub was empty. There was some goo in it, but Danny thought that he would clean it up. A little water would send it right down the drain. Do you have to go? I'll be out pretty soon. No. I just... I just thought I heard you call. Danny grabbed his toothbrush and opened the door. I'm 100% cool. See? He gave her a big smile. It wasn't hard now that Mrs. Massey was gone. The troubled look on her left her face. Good. Make sure you brush the back ones. That's where the food goes to hide. I will, Mom. From inside his head, far inside, where the twin of his special lockbox was stored on a special shelf, Danny could hear her muffled screaming. He didn't mind. He thought that it would soon stop soon enough. And he was right. King's on a roll. He's not wasting any time giving us the goods. With Mrs. Massey out of the way, he knows that we're going to start to think about one of the other more famous ghosts, and he gives it to us with Horace Derwent, who is immediately dispatched. The fact that Danny is so in control now shows the potential of this character. And if he's this confident and capable by age eight, there's no doubt that he's going to have a successful life. Which is why it's so important for King to shatter that notion immediately following the second capture of the ghost by mentioning the alcohol. He was wise to get the ghosts out of the way, and once out of the way, he reminds us that The Shining was never really about the ghosts. It was about the alcoholism. He reminds us about this. With the tease left dangling, 
King introduces us to the second third of our main characters, the true knot, and how they came across Andrea Steiner. I'm going to talk a lot more about Rose the Hat and her group in much more detail later, but let's mark how we first meet them in a movie theater on a weekday, which speaks to their praying, pathetic nature. Rose the Knot, rather than the frightening water hag of Room 217, is an alluring, sympathetic seductress. The true Knot are... They're just weird. They're weird inclusions to King's cast of characters. But their ceremonial ritual to convert Andy is truly unsettling. No doubt we're supposed to juxtapose this with the previous scene in which two superpowered individuals shared information. The same occurs here, except this is a perverted, tainted, cultish, and dark scene. One was built on the basis of love and strength, and this is built on fear and seduction. Like I said, I'll get into the true knot later. In the meantime, let's check back into adult Danny, who for all intents and purposes is being reintroduced as a new character, the drunken adult. When we first meet him, he's in the throes of an incredibly detailed hangover. I don't know the last time King experienced one. But with this section, he's able to invoke the sensations with such clarity that you start to feel it yourself. The entire segment is a master class in character work and descriptive prowess. It is unbelievable what he does with it, and the introduction to Danny Torrance is one of King's greatest literary achievements, which includes the line which comes after Dan scans the sordid room, the overflowing toilet, the unsexiness of his previous night's partner, and the cracked TV with duct tape adorned with dead flies. Dan eyed with morbid fascination, reflecting, not for the first time, that the hungover eye had a weird ability to find the ugliest things in any given landscape. The purpose of this section is to present Danny at his lowest. It's heartbreaking, but not unexpected. After all, how can you come through the ordeal suffered in the page of The Shining as anything other than a complete mess? King gives us an honest and brutal examination of consequence. And with his second non-series sequel, with Black House being the first, he gives us the logical progression in the life of a Stephen King character. What else would you expect would happen to a Stephen King character? The happy ending might come with the immediate survival, but how do you even begin to go about picking up the pieces of your life? Of course the picture that's put back together is going to be missing some pieces. Furthermore, for this story to work as a companion piece to The Shining, meaning dependency will play an integral part, King has to show Danny at his lowest, so we'll have a sympathetic basis we can turn to throughout the rest of the novel. Not only does he leave a toddler behind with his drug-addicted mother, he also steals from not just her, but the, steals the, the, the carpet of a homeless man outside of a liquor store. Though Jack Torrance died in the concluding pages of The Shining, make no mistake, his presence is felt on nearly every page. Danny might as well be possessed by the alcoholic spirit of, of his deceased father. I mean, from here, uh, we witness the horror born from alcoholism. Part 1. Abra. Or Abra. Still, still can't decide. Uh, when Dan arrives in the home of Teeny Town, Frazier, New Hampshire, we know this is where he's going to stay. Because Tony, the disembodied voice that protected him in the pages of The Shining, tells him to stay. All forces seem to be aligning for Danny to make his stand against alcoholism in Frazier, New Hampshire. 
we meet the kind Billy Freeman who will offer Dan his second chance. King provides some mirroring to The Shining with Fraser, New Hampshire standing in for Colorado, Billy Freeman as a modern-day Dick Halloran, and Kingsley as the new Ullman who hires Dan as a groundskeeper just as Ullman had hired Jack as a caretaker in a different mountain town half a country away. Just as things start to work in Dan's favor, King drops the other shoe. It's a double-edged sword. If Danny's not drinking, then he's not drowning out the shine, which means he's more susceptible to hauntings and ghostly visitations, which begin with the ominous top hat rolling down the street. I'm glad that King included it, because it's such a distinct image that comes with the type of dream logic that doesn't make any sense. The sight of it immediately fills Danny with dread. Outside of a dream, there's no reason why it should, but it does, and it goes to build up Rose's threat level that much more. From there, as the snows fall around his first night as the new Danny, he is visited in a dream by the dead woman and her son, whose memory have haunted him since we were reintroduced to him as an adult. Not long after, King gives us another callback, one of the most famous aspects of the original, when Danny sees red rum scrawled on the mirror. It's fun and all, but is this an example of too much pandering? And what's the point of Danny seeing this? What purpose does it serve? I understand that it's connected to the vision he sees of the blood-filled bathtub with the top hat floating in it, so yes, I get that red rum is on its way, but it kind of seems like a callback for the sake of callbacks. Or maybe it's King's shorthand to unearth the most horrible qualities of the first novel. Why not use the most famous catchphrase from his entire body of work so he can use the connotations that go along with it? Because at that moment, Danny feels the crushing weight of the Overlook, which has come to stand for everything wrong with him. The ultimate abuser. And it pushes him to purchase the alcohol he struggles to drink, holding off until he's found by Billy, who takes him to Kingsley, and the warmth and good nature of humanity within this scene is inspiring. Like I've said before, King gets a bad rap for his blood and guts, and not enough credit for his positivity and hope in humanity. When Danny needs help the most, help rushes in. Basically strangers who immediately become the best friends he's ever had. I'm sure King would have used Someone Save My Life Tonight here if it already wasn't taken by another famous Stephen King Elkie. What this is is the birth of the new Danny which King hits us over the head with, with the birth of Abra herself. It's as if Danny knew that he'd have to get himself clean in order to be in shape to help save her. Now, King gives us a great sequence in which Abra starts crying nonstop, waking both her parents from a dream that reveals itself to be the response to a premonition of 9-11. It's a well-done scene showcasing the extent of Abra's abilities, very impressive, even more so for a child. So we see the horror this infant has uh, for the tragedy. And King quickly offsets it with a scene depicting how the true knot spent the day, 9-11, first preparing for it, then basking in the horror, feeding from all of the negative emotions from uh, the, the Twin Towers falling. Dan begins getting closer to the life of Abra without knowing it, becoming friends with her pediatrician, Dr. John, whom he has befriended in the AA rooms. There's a scene between them that sees Dan help him find a missing watch that feels like a nod to Johnny Smith from the Dead Zone. The Stones then give Dr. John the scoop on Abra and her abilities that give her a power level just below a tack-powered Seth from the Regulators. 
Abra is now the latest in a long line of superpowered children, and her abilities place her nearly on top of that mountain. King switches perspective to Danny, who we now see working at the hospice, and King reveals that sorry, and King reveals while the title of the book is Doctor Sleep, the moniker Danny has earned by easing hospice patients as they die. We've seen The Shining as a passive force before, but in this book, first with Abra and now with Danny's adult usage of it, we see it more proactive. It's a nice scene that showcases the warmth of our main character, which is then juxtaposed by the Jack Torrance rage that possesses him when he struggles to assault the orderly who placed bruises on the dying man's arms. Now let's talk about the true knot. I'll get to them uh, in detail later on, but at... 150 or so pages, King has done well to establish Abra and chronicle the fall and rise from Danny Torrance, the haunted abuse victim, to Dan Torrance, the hospital miracle worker named Dr. Sleep. We've seen the true knot in a few scenes sprinkled throughout, living parasites, um, monsters of the road. But with this section here, King gives us an incredible description of this traveling band of psychic vampires. The True Knot wasn't incorporated, but if it had been, certain side-of-the-road communities in Maine, Florida, Colorado, and New Mexico would have been referred to as company towns. These were places where all the major businesses and large plots of land could be traced back through a tangle of holding companies to them. The Trues towns, with colorful names like Dry Bend, Jerusalem's Lot, Ori, and Sidewinder, were safe havens, but they never stayed in those places for long. Mostly they were migratory. If you drove the turnpikes and main-traveled highways of America, you might have seen them. Maybe it was on I-95 in South Carolina, somewhere south of Dillon and north of Santee. Maybe it was on I-80 in Nevada, in the mountain country west of Draper. Or in Georgia, while negotiating, slowly if you know it's good for you, that notorious Highway 41 speed trap outside Tifton. How many times have you found yourself behind a lumbering RV, eating exhaust and waiting impatiently for your chance to pass? Creeping along at 40 when you could be doing a perfectly legal 65 or even 70. And when there's finally a hole in the fast lane and you pull out, holy God, you see a long line of those damn things, gas hogs, driven at exactly 10 miles an hour below the legal speed limit by bespectacled golden oldies who hunch over their steering wheels, gripping them like they think they're going to fly away. Or maybe you've encountered them in the turnpike rest area, when you stop to stretch your legs and maybe drop a few quarters into one of the vending machines. The entrance ramps to those rest stops always divide in two, don't they? cars in one parking lot, long-haul trucks and RVs in another. Usually the lot for the big rigs and RVs is a little farther away. You might have seen the trues rolling motorhomes parked in that lot, all in a cluster. You might have seen their owners walking up to the main building. Slow, because many of them look old, and some of them are pretty darn fat. Always in a group, always keeping to themselves. Sometimes they pull off one of the exits loaded with gas stations, motels, and fast food joints. And if you see those RVs parked at McDonald's or Burger King, you keep on going, because you'll know they'll be all lined up at the counter, the men wearing floppy golf hats or long-billed fishing caps, the women in stretch pants, usually powder blue, and shirts that say things like, ask me about my grandchildren, or Jesus is king, or happy wanderer. You'd rather go half a mile further down the road to the Waffle House or Shoney's, wouldn't you? 
because you'll know that they'll take forever to order, mooning over the menu, always wanting their quarter pounders without pickles, or their whoppers without the sauce. Asking if there are any interesting tourist attractions in the area, even though anyone can see this, is just another, as as though anyone can see this, just another nothing three stoplight burg where kids leave as soon as they graduate from the nearest high school. You hardly see them, right? Why would you? They're just the RV people. Elderly retirees and a few younger compatriots living their rootless lives on the turnpikes and blue highways, staying at campgrounds where they sit around in their Walmart lawn chairs and cook on their hibachis while they talk about investments and fishing tournaments and hot pot recipes and God knows what. They're the ones who always stop at flea markets and yard sales, parking their damn dinosaurs nose to tail, half on the shoulder and half on the road so you have to slow to a crawl in order to creep by. They're the opposite of the motorcycle clubs you sometimes see on those wild, those same turnpikes and blue highways. The mild angels instead of the wild ones. They're annoying as hell when they descend en masse at a rest area and fill up all the toilets. But once their bulky, road-stunned bowels finally work and you're able to take a pew yourself, you put them out of your mind, don't you? They're no more remarkable than a flock of birds on a telephone wire or a herd of cows grazing in a field beside the road. Oh, you might wonder how they can afford to fill those fuel-gasling monstrosities, because they must be on comfy fixed incomes. How else could they spend all their time driving around like they do? And you might puzzle over why anyone would want to spend their golden years cruising all those endless American miles between hoot and holler, but beyond that, you probably never spare them a thought. And if you happen to be one of those unfortunate people who's ever lost a kid, nothing left but a bike in the vacant lot down the street, or a little cap lying in the bushes at the edge of a nearby stream. You probably never thought of them. Why would you? No, it was probably some hobo. Or, worse to consider, but horribly plausible, some sick F from your own very town. Maybe your very own neighborhood. Maybe your very own street. Some sick killer pervo who's very good at looking normal and will go on looking normal until someone finds a clatter of bones in the guy's basement or buried in his backyard. You'd never think of the RV people, those midlife pensioners and cheery older folks in their golf hats and sun visors with appliqued flowers on them. And mostly, you'd be right. There are thousands of RV people, but by 2011, there was only one knot left in America. The true knot. They liked moving around, and that was good, because they had to. If they stayed in one place, they'd eventually attract attention, because they don't age like other people. Apron Annie, or Dirty Phil, Rube Names, Anne Lamont, and Phil Caputo might appear to grow 20 years older overnight. The little twins, P and Pod, might snap back from 22 to 12, or almost the age at which they turned, but their turning was long ago. The only member of the true who's actually young is Andrea Steiner, now known as Snakebite Andy. And even she's not as young as she looks. A tottery, grumpy old lady of 80 suddenly becomes 60 again. A leathery old gent of 70 is able to put away his cane. The skin tumors on his arms and face disappear. Black-eyed Susie loses her hitching limp. Diesel Doug goes from half-blind with cataracts to sharp-eyed and a bald spot magically gone. All at once, hey, presto, he's 45 again. Steamhead Steve's crooked back straightens. His wife, Baba the Red, ditches those uncomfortable continence pants, puts on her rhinestone-studded ariat boots, and says she wants to go out line dancing. Given time to observe such changes, people would wonder and people would talk. 
Eventually, some reporter would turn up, and the true knot shied away from publicity the way vampires supposedly shy away from sunlight. But since they don't live in one place, and when they stop for an extended period in one of their company towns they keep to themselves, they fit right in. Why not? They wear the same clothes as the other RV people. They wear the same El Cheapo sunglasses. They buy the same souvenir t-shirts and consult the same AAA roadmaps. They put the same decals on their bounders and bagos, touting all of the particular places they visited. I helped trim the world's biggest tree in Christmas land, and you'd find yourself looking out at the same bumper stickers while you're stuck behind them. Old but not dead. Save Medicare. I'm a conservative and I vote. Waiting for a chance to pass. They eat fried chicken from the colonel and buy the occasional scratch ticket in those easy-on, easy-off convenience stores where they sell beer, bait, ammo, Motor Trend magazine, and 10,000 kinds of candy bars. If there's a bingo hall in the town where they stop, a bunch of them are apt to go on over, take a table, and play until the last coverall game is finished. At one of those games, Greedy G, Rube named Greta Moore, won $500. She gloated over that for months, and although the members of the true have all the money they need, it pisses off some of the other ladies to no end. Token Charlie wasn't too pleased either. He said he'd been waiting on B7 for five pulls from the hopper when the G finally bingoed. Greedy, you're one lucky bitch, he said. And you're one unlucky bastard, she replied. If one of them happens to get speed trapped or stopped for some minor traffic offense, it's rare, but it does happen. The cop finds nothing but valid licenses, up-to-date insurance cards, and paperwork in apple pie order. No voices are raised while a cop's standing there with a citation book, even if it's an obvious scam. The charges are never disputed, and all fines are paid promptly. America is a living body, the highways are its arteries, and the true knot slips along them like a silent virus. But there are no dogs. Ordinary RV people travel with lots of canine company, usually those little ship machines with white fur, gaudy collars, and nasty tempers. You know the kind. They have irritating barks that hurt your ears and ratty little eyes full of disturbing intelligence. See them sniffing their way through the grass in the designated pet walking areas of the turnpike rest stops. Their owners trailing behind pooper scoopers at the ready. In addition to the usual decals and bumper stickers on the motorhomes of these ordinary RV people, you're apt to see little diamond-shaped signs reading Pomeranian on board or I love my poodle. Not the true knot. They don't like dogs and dogs don't like them. You might say dogs see through them. To the sharp and watchful eyes behind the cut-rate sunglasses, to the strong and long-muscled hunter's legs beneath the polyester slacks from Walmart, to the sharp teeth beneath the dentures waiting to come out. They don't like dogs, but they like certain children. Oh yes, they like certain children very much. I just think that this is a great uh, and descriptive and unsettling group of villains and those four or so pages that, that King dedicates to, to really getting to the, the heart of the true knot is it's very, very well done. It really sets them up um, to be major threats, and I'll get to this later, but unique threats um, when compared to the, the other Stephen King um, villains in his catalog. Time passes, and we learn of the relationship forming between Danny and Abra, what of trust, and Tony, who was a manifestation of Danny to help her as it had helped him when he was even younger than she was. As time passes, we learn of a new trait of Danny's shine, 
that he can foretell a person's death by seeing flies crawling on their faces. It's a haunting and creepy image, in line with premonitory imagery that King has given us in previous novels like the Death Bag from Insomnia. King ends this first section of the novel not with the threat of the true knot, but the threat of temptation, showing Danny as he struggles to fight the urge to head into a local bar. Thankfully, with the help of Dr. John, he resists the urge, but it's important to show the realities and everyday struggle that comes with alcoholism. Part 2, Empty Devils. After we check back in with Abra, we see that she's older and in much more control of her abilities. Haunted by the memory of the abducted boy Bradley, who had been snatched away and tortured by the true knot in a gruesome sequence, King shows us what she can do by revisiting that scene again and controlling the vision like she has a remote control in her head. Unfortunately, it turns out that Rose, the leader of the True Knot, senses it and manages to get inside her head, only briefly, but that's all the time that King needs for us to grow uneasy. With the demonstration of power from Audra, Rose wants her all the more. And fittingly, when this occurs, the True Knot are parked in a campground where once had stood the Overlook Hotel. With no one left to turn to, Abra does the only thing she can and sends a mental SOS to Tony, which Dan receives and understands that he's about to become the dick of someone else's story. And it isn't and it isn't built up how Dan and Abra will meet. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. She needs his help, they make plans to meet. King knows Dan will have to play this carefully as an adult man emailing a teenage girl is going to look bad, but in order to propel the plot, he needs to get these two together. And it's great to see them just to be able to share each other's shining. Them projecting images into each other's heads is fun and makes you feel happy for the both of them. And it's immediately a strong relationship. Naturally, because of their abilities, they're comfortable with each other. And I look forward to seeing this teacher-student relationship continue to grow. Unsurprisingly, because of the beginning of one teacher-student relationship, it's natural to look at the other teacher-student relationship, and that's Dick. Unfortunately, we learn that Dick has been dead since 1999. Though he's dead, this is a sequel to The Shining, after all, which means that there can always be a supernatural way to communicate, which happens here. Because the dead mentor no doubt senses the need uh, for help from his protege. No. The dead mentor no doubt senses that that basically he knows that Danny needs help and he's gonna he's gonna do what he can to to help him out. He visits him as the disembodied voice in a recently dead person's body and gives some insight on the true knot. <clears throat> they are empty devils. They are sick and don't know it. I don't understand. No. And that's good. If you ever had met them, if they had ever gotten so much as a sniff of you, you'd be long dead, used and thrown away like an empty carton. That's what happened to the one Abra calls the baseball boy, and many others. Children who shine are prey to them. But you already guessed that, didn't you? The empty devils are on the land like a cancer on the skin. Once they rode camels in the desert. Once they drove caravans across eastern Europe. They eat screams and drink pain. You had your horrors at the Overlook, Danny, but at least you were spared these folks. Now that the strange woman has her mind fixed on the girl, they won't stop until they have her. They might kill her, they might turn her, they might keep her and use her until she's all used up, and that would be the worst of all. 
The lines of the white are converging. As Dr. John and Danny prepare to find Bradley's body and Abra's great-grandmother um, heading to the hospice that Danny works at. Things start to escalate around this part, with Danny convinced Abra's in danger and the true not figuring out her location. What happens next is a complete reversal of the conflict of The Shining in which the child was at the mercy of the dangerous creatures. Here, while Abra is sleeping, Rose enters her mind only to discover that it's a trap set by a wily and powerful Abra who wants to stick it to the True Knot leader. It's great to see the young heroine in charge and to put Rose on the ropes where she's vulnerable and frightened. King continues ratcheting up the tension as both sides begin their plans. Roland the Gunslinger would nod in approval, recognizing that a game of castles was being played, each side attempting to outwit the other. It's not as easy um, as The Shining, where the formula was pretty simple to follow. Haunted house plus trapped family equals danger. What King's doing here with Dr. Sleep, it's a bit more complex. This is super-powered heroes fighting super-powered monsters. Still tense, as King's previous work, still thrilling, but not confined by the genre of horror. Part 3, Matters of Life and Death. So one of my complaints after I had first read Dr. Sleep, not this time, but the first time I had read Dr. Sleep when it had come out was how vulnerable King made the true knot. In retrospect, um, uh, with the reread the, the the measles subplot does wonders in establishing this desperation that they have they face extinction with their backs against the wall and because king is not retreading the same steps that he had in the first book and empowers his characters to a point where they aren't nearly as vulnerable as the torrents had been in the first book the fear of being wiped out by something as measly as measles backs the true knot into a corner and we all know what happens when we back an animal into a corner. So I'll talk a little bit about how I had first felt about the true knot and how I feel about them now later in the podcast. But I just want to say that when I first read this, I balked at, like I said, the vulnerability. But here, I completely understand why he's doing it. <laughs> Meanwhile, King starts to tease the heritage of Abra, specifically the question around who her grandfather is. When I sat down to reread this, I completely completely forgot about this plot point. And if you're half reading or turning the pages too quickly to find out what happens when the true knot descends upon Abra, you might gloss over it. At that point, there's a lot going on. Abra's great-grandmother is dying. Barry the chink is cycling. The good guys are enacting their plan to escape, to trap the true knot. The true knot are on their way. It's easy to skip past this page and a half of speculation about Abra's grandfather, and I assume King does this purposefully to hide it within the more vivid plot points to make the reveal pack that much more of a punch, simultaneously coming out of left field and in open view the entire time. So the reveal, which I'll get to later, is that her grandfather is Jack Torrance, making Dan and Lucy brother and sister. A twist which I personally happen to like. You know, we don't need it. Dan simply could have been Abra's mentor, but he's her uncle. And I like the idea that one novel ends with the crumbling of one family, and its sequel ends with the rise of that same family. I mean, go, Stephen King, go! Seriously, guys, I mean, why is he ever criticized? I mean, 
I know that I've done that at times and stand by my criticisms, but those that call him a schlock writer or lump him into the Bentley Littles of the world are idiots. And this guy simply knows how to tell a story on multiple levels. You know, I mean... It, I don't know. He just makes it look easy. And this stuff is not easy. But anyway, so when the True Knot rolls into the area to find Abra, only to discover Dan instead, King knows how to play, play us. He's established Abra as a threat of her own, but unfortunately, she's getting cocky. And when she senses Barry the chink, you know, cycle out, she thinks that the threat is behind her, which throws their entire plan out the window. Shit hits the fan when the True Knot attempts to attack Dan, but it's a messy end for the parasitic creatures who do not have the upper hand at all in this circumstance. The novel almost buckles from a lack of tension because of their incompetence, but only serves the characters because King writes... He had time to see that the plastic protector sleeve was still on the end of the needle. I had time to think, what kind of clowns are these guys? The answer, of course, was that they weren't clowns at all. They were hunters completely unused to resistance from their prey. And as Andy the Snake dies, she gives a sympathetic speech at the end about how she had the right to live and the justification of her hatred towards men. King's not condoning her actions but it's certainly making it harder to dislike her. And then the chapter ends with uncertainty when Dan can't reach Abra, Billy, or Rose the Hat. This, combined with the missing crow, mean that there are way too many variables in their plan. The missing crow happened to suspect that something was up and got the jump first on Billy Freeman, then on Abra herself. In a harrowing scene, she's drugged and abducted, and conveniently, Billy Freeman is left alive, who will come in handy when Abra mentally reaches out to Dan to assist. Dan overrules the drug's power by flipping on all of her shining powers, and Abra, Dan, and Billy all manage to be more than enough to cause Crow to kill himself. Again, in The Shining, King kept building the terror, but here, he keeps building our hero's badassery. After Rose declares that they will avenge the deaths... Um, in a great villainous speech, Dan and Abra enter her head and say, Don't bother coming to me, Rose. I'm coming for you. Our gang heads to uh, Momo's hospital, where Dan is able to ease her into death. And it's here where King confirms the big twist teased earlier that Lucy and Dan are siblings. We head into the home stretch that will find Dan Torrance once again at the spot where the Overlook had once stood. And as both sides are ready for the confrontation, we see the true knot begin to break apart as many of the members are too weak and afraid for a fight. The end is coming quickly, and Abra gives Rose a threatening call that shows how strong and confident she is. This is contrasted with how temperamental and scared Rose truly is, honestly shaken by the 13-year-old girl's taunts. The section ends with a vulnerable moment, first with Abra, who's terrified at her bloodlust, and Dan, when looking at himself in the mirror, sees his face covered in flies. Part 4. Roof of the World. The players gather their plans as Dan and Billy head to the campground where the Overlook had once stood, while Abra continues to fool Rose in thinking she's the one heading that way. 
Along the way, King manages to sneak in some nostalgia for both the characters and for us. As in the way to the campground, Dan stops at the apartment where we had first met him as a boy in the pages of The Shining. Right, said Dan, then went on looking at the building with the peeling green paint. Once a little boy had lived here, once he had sat on the very piece of curbing where Billy Freeman now stood munching his chicken foot long. A little boy waiting for his daddy to come home from his job interview at the Overlook Hotel. He had a balsa glider, that little boy, but the wing was busted. It was okay, though. When his daddy came home, he would fix it with tape and glue. Then maybe they would fly it together. His daddy had been a scary man, and how that little boy had loved him. Dan's sickness is revealed as it turns out he's holding the dying cancerous ghost of Momo inside him, which he releases at the gathered True Knot, who believe the showdown will take place at the top of the world. The ambush is a major success, and the vengeful ghost of Abra's great-grandmother tears through them like tissue paper. And the giddy fan in all of us can't wait for King to unleash the fury of Horus, who had been locked in Danny's head since being a child. It's like the ending to, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, guys, Jurassic World. So, spoiler. But it's like the ending. This is the equivalent of the T-Rex from the original Jurassic Park to lay the smackdown on the Indominus Rex. And we get that here on page 502. Silent Sari was so focused on what was going on at Roof of the World, listening with every admittedly limited IQ point of her mind as well as with her ears, that she did not at first realize she was no longer alone in the shed. It was a smell that finally alerted her. Something rotten. Not garbage. She didn't dare turn because the door was open and the man out there might see her. She stood still, the sickle in one hand. Sari heard Rose telling the man to leave while he still had the chance and that was when the shed door began swinging shut again all on its own. Don't make me punish you, Rose called. That was her cue to burst out and put the sickle in the troublesome, meddling little girl's neck. But since the girl was gone, the man would have to do. But before she could move, a cold hand slid over the wrist holding the sickle, slid over it, and clamped tight. She turned, no reason not to, with the door closed. And what she saw by the dim light filtering through the cracks in the old boards caused a scream to come bolting out of her usually silent throat. At some point while she had been concentrating, a corpse had joined her in the tool shed. His smiling predatory face was the damp whitish green of a spoiled avocado. His eyes seemed to almost dangle from their sockets. His suit was splotched with ancient mold but the multicolored confetti sprinkled on his shoulders was fresh. Great party, isn't it? He said, and as he grinned, his lips split open. She screamed again and drove the sickle into his left temple. The curved blade went deep and hung there, but there was no blood. Give us a kiss, dear, Horace Derwin said. From between his lips came the wiggling white remnant of a tongue. It's been a long time since I've been with a woman. As his tattered lips, shining with decay, settled on Ceres, his hands closed around her throat. 
there's a constant back and forth between Rose, Abra, and Dan, uh, with Rose enraged with the fact that her entire tribe has been slaughtered, fools Danny into thinking that he's choking her when in fact he's really choking the spirit of Abra. At this moment, Dan is possessed by the rage of his father, uttering his father's catchphrase of having to take your medicine. Speaking of whom, just when Rose begins to have the upper hand, she gets slammed by a force of air and sees a shimmer. King teases the identity of this gust of air, and because we know it's neither Dan nor Abra, we can take a guess who it might be. And who else could it be? Here, at the roof of the world, when the evil of this book threatens to overcome its hero, the tragic protagonist turned antagonist of the first book comes back for just a moment to save his son one last time. The ghost of Jack Torrance has haunted Danny for the entire novel. But here, the literal ghost of Jack Torrance has returned to save the day. It's a too brief cameo to the point where it's actually a fault that we don't get more, but it's wonderfully done. So on page 508, King writes, That was why, no doubt about it. But you don't need to be Ebenezer Scrooge to know that there were good ghosty people as well as bad ones. As they walked down toward the Overlook Lodge, Dan paused to look back at the roof of the world. He was not entirely surprised to see a man standing on the platform by the broken rail. He raised one hand, the summit of Pawnee Mountain visible through it, and sketched a flying kiss that Dan remembered from his childhood. He remembered it well. It had been their special end-of-the-day thing. Bedtime, Doc. Sleep tight. Dream up a dragon and tell me about it in the morning. Dan knew he was going to cry, but not now. This wasn't the time. He lifted his own hand to his mouth and returned the kiss. He looked for a moment longer at what remained of his father. Then he headed down to the parking lot with Billy. When they got there, he looked back once more. Roof of the world was empty. Until you sleep... Oh my god i don't know how i didn't think of this i don't get it here it's revealed that among his aa circles because of his hospice work danny is known as doc i mean why wouldn't he be he's always been doc the name of the book is dr sleep i did not put two and two together anyway with the plot out of the way it's time for the characters to wrap up their stories and here, at his 15th year of sobriety, Dan finally admits to his fateful night with Deanie and her child. Then, at Abra's 15th birthday, Dan helps her through some of her anger, tracing the legacy of the rage that runs in their blood. And when Abra says, Sometimes I get so angry at teachers, kids at school who think they're hot shits, the ones who laugh if you're not good at sports, wearing the wrong clothes... I can't help but think that this novel is not just functioning as a balm to The Shining, the book, but also Carrie as well. With Dan to help Abra through her anger, he's helping her do so that she won't fall down the same hole that Carrie White had so long ago. 
The novel concludes showing Dan's deep reservoir of humanity and compassion by easing Fred, the nasty orderly who had abused an elderly patient earlier, into death. So guys, before I uh, get to the Easter eggs and the Stephen Kingisms, I'm going to just talk about Rose the Hat and the True Knot. So here's the problem. Um, King, uh, in the months, possibly even years, leading up to the publication of this book, he stated that this was his scariest book in years. And a statement like that suggests a frightening villain. You can imagine my surprise when we're introduced to Rose the Hat and the True Knot, who are first spotted in a movie theater on a weekday afternoon. Um, and this speaks more to their drifter lifestyle than their terror. And that's fine. It's fine. It's just, I was very disappointed when I first read this because I found it to not really be that scary. And I, I found the true not to, to really not be that scary. Um, and I wouldn't have had an issue with that had it not been billed as the scariest book that King had written in decades. Um, because I think that that's unfair to what he's actually doing with the True Knot and Rose the Hat. So let's examine them for what they are. They're a traveling cult. They're parasites. They're vampires in a sense. Now contrast them with King's original vampires, the bona fide monsters of Salem's Lot. What King does to the True Knot is what he's been doing to his monsters since he concluded the Dark Tower series. He took away their edges, and he gave them pathos. In the Dark Tower, people hated Mordred and the Crimson King because of their ineffectual nature, because they're so pathetic. But I'd argue that because they are pathetic is what makes them so interesting. Gone are the days, long gone, of Barlow and our first introduction to Flag, Pennywise, Gaunt, George Stark. King just isn't in the business of romanticizing his villains anymore. In fact, he immediately dispatches that notion by uh, locking up our boogeymen within the first 20 pages. The two ghosts of the Overlook, who have gone down in varying degrees of cinematic and pop culture respectively um, as genuine, single-natured, terrifying threats, they're instantaneously beaten by a confident eight-year-old. What King is saying is that the fear we have of the classic boogeyman is easily combated and overpowered once we set our mind to it. These, he argues, are childish fears, which retroactively speaks to Jack Torrance's complete weakness. And if the childish fears are so easily beaten, then what will take their place? The adult complexity of grown-up monsters, that's what. Hence the true not. And with a novel that deals with sobriety... What better antagonist than the walking personification of addiction? These nomadic bottom feeders who threaten our comfort and safety when they blow through town. Not only does it speak to addiction, but man, what a powerful commentary on how we treat addicts in our country. Furthermore, they function as great parallels to Danny's story. One of Danny's abilities is to seal the more dangerous ghosts within his mind, a rightful prison for monstrous spirits. The true knot, on the other hand, steal the essence of living children and bottle them in their own containers for nourishment. One captures dead spirits who refuse to die. The others capture live spirits before they've had a chance to live. Danny gains respect and self-respect through the moniker of Dr. Sleep, the man who eases the deaths of the elderly who want to go out gracefully. 
On the flip side of that, you have the true not, who are anything uh, but full of grace and will do anything to stay alive. While other under while others under Danny's care want to maintain their dignity, the true knot are nomads in tacky disguises with carny names. King might be skilled at giving his villains personality, but not at the expense of keeping them monstrous. It's important for him to show the reader the threat level. We've seen them take steam. We know that they prey upon those with the shining but he knows he has to turn them into a threat for our characters, which is what he does when they abduct young Bradley around the age of Abra. Now, it's a hard scene to read, but it is incredibly effective at demonstrating their their threat level and showing us exactly the, the monsters that they truly are. They might not really be the boogeymen that we had once seen, but in their own way, they definitely are worse. They took him north to an abandoned ethanol processing plant that was miles from the nearest farmhouse. Crow carried the boy out of Rose's earth cruiser and laid him gently on the ground. Brad was bound with duct tape and weeping. As the true knot gathered around him, like mourners at an open grave, he said, Please take me home. I'll never tell. Rose dropped to one knee beside him and sighed. I would if I could, son, but I can't. His eyes found Barry. You said you were one of the good guys. I heard you. You said so. Sorry, pal. Barry didn't look sorry. What he looked was hungry. It's not personal. Brad shifted his eyes back to Rose. Are you going to hurt me? Please don't hurt me. Of course they were going to hurt him. It was regrettable, but pain purified steam, and the true knot had to eat. Lobsters also felt pain when they were dropped into pots of boiling water, but that didn't stop the rubes from doing it. Food was food, and survival was survival. Rose put her hands behind her back. Into one of these, Greedy G placed a knife. It was short but very sharp. Rose smiled down at the boy and said, As little as possible. The boy lasted a long time. He screamed until his vocal cords ruptured and his cries became husky barks. At one point, Rose paused and looked around. Her hands, long and strong, wore red bloody gloves. Something? Crow asked. We'll talk later, Rose said and went back to work. The light of a dozen flashlights had turned a piece of ground behind the ethanol plant into a makeshift operating theater. Brad Trevor whispered, Please kill me. Rose the Hat gave him a comforting smile. Soon. But it wasn't. Those husky barks recommenced, and eventually they turned to steam. At dawn, they buried, they buried the boy's body. Then they moved on. This is grotesque, guys. I don't recall children ever being tortured like this in a Stephen King story. Sure, plenty have died, but even with Pennywise, uh, their deaths were relatively quick. The fact that this poor kid is forced to endure such agony places the true knot on their own special shelf of Stephen King's villains. Now let's talk about the lack of adult um, and adult parent relationships. Um, it hit me during this read that King makes the point to kill Wendy Torrance. He didn't have to kill her. 
and she would have been viable enough to, to still be alive. And once I thought more about it, I realized that King rarely writes about adults with their parents, with some exceptions. Um, Larry Underwood, uh, Johnny Smith, um, and Fran Franny Goldsmith, um, very, very briefly. But I mean, also, in It, right? Where are the parents when the losers head back? Do none of them have relationships with their parents? When Mike Noonan's wife dies in Bag of Bones, don't you think he'd lean on his parents? Thad Beaumont, Polly Chalmers, Alan Pangborn? I'm 34, and I'm lucky that my parents are still alive and part of my life. The age range of King's majority of characters falls into um, the characters between, you know, 30 to 50. It's not unheard of to have parents be present in the lives of their children at that point, and... That never stuck out, stood out to me until reading Dr. Sleep. Um, and I think that it is a missed opportunity there because it's one aspect that um, you just don't really get to see. I'm not saying that you don't see relationships between uh, children and their parents, but you, I've never seen King really explore a, an adult relationship between a child and their parents. Probably because, um, you know, Stephen King's mother probably died um, so far back that he doesn't have that experience to draw from. I would assume. I could be wrong. But uh, it's it's one area that, that I would like to see him tackle. Okay, guys. Stephen Kingisms. Um, the first is uh, the wise old black man and the young boy on the beach. So when Dick returns in the beginning, he takes Danny to talk to him on the beach. This invokes the image of Speedy Parker and Jack Sawyer from The Talisman. The caravan. The true knot uh, function as a caravan driving down the road. We first saw this in Thinner. Uh, the choo-choo train ride. The teeny town train ride is not the first one that we've seen in a Stephen King book. Of course, the most famous being Charlie the Choo-Choo. From the Wastelands. Number five is superpowered children slash people. We've had Danny Torrance, Charlie McGee, Carrie White, Dinah from the Langoliers, Johnny Smith, John Coffey, Edgar Fremantle, Dinky Earnshaw, Shimi Ruiz, Jake Chambers, Jack Sawyer, Tyler Marshall, Ted Brodigan, Leo from the Stand, Mother Abigail, David Carter, and Duddits. You know, we, we, we've had quite a few, guys. And um, Abra is now the, the latest in a long line of, of breakers. <laughs> Number six is Mental Control Room. We've seen the Mental Control Room in the uh, Tracker Brothers Depot office in Jonesy's Mind and Dreamcatcher, um, in Seth's Mind in Regulators, and inside Susanna's Dogen in Song of Susanna. And here, when Danny goes into Abra's mind, he envisions a, a, a row of, of buttons and, and levers uh, that he uses to, to turn up all of her powers. And Easter eggs. This one, guys, this one was, was a lot of fun. Charlie Manx. When Joe Hill published Nosferatu, he made mention of the true knot. And here in Dr. Sleep, King returns the favor by first mentioning Charlie Manx, the incredible villain of the book, as well as Christmas Land, the other world he would take his victims. Number two is Castle Rock. Dr. John uh, refers to having make the rounds uh, in Castle Rock. Number three, Inside View is mentioned. Inside View being the tabloid magazine that we've seen in numerous Stephen King stories. 
Number four, Jerusalem's lot. This is one of the towns that the true knot uses. Number five is language of the dead. Now, it's never confirmed, uh, but the ritualistic chanting of the true knot is definitely reminiscent of the language of the dead, first heard in desperation um, and seen throughout the Dark Tower series. Number six, there are other worlds than these. Danny says this to Dr. John, and we, of course, heard this most uh, famously uttered by Jake Chambers in the pages of The Gunslinger. Number seven, becoming dim. One of the True Knots characters, uh, their ability is to become dim, which is slightly invisible, and this is a, a power that um, many Stephen King villains have had before in the past. And life is a wheel. On page 523, King writes, Life is a wheel. Its only job was to turn, and it always came back to where it had started, which is Stephen King's long-running probably the the heart of his writing um so life is a wheel it's called here but we most famously know that phrase as ka is a wheel so for anyone that wants the shining part two you're not going to get it that's not what this is um the doctor sleep is it's not really kind of have a hard time calling it a sequel to the shining it is a continuation of the boy from The Shining, of a character from The Shining, and it certainly references The Shining, but like I said at the top of the, the podcast, it is almost the exact opposite of what The Shining is. Um, you don't get the same sense of vulnerability. The monsters are not that monstrous. Uh, it's not confined. It's not claustrophobic. It's it's very open world. Um so there's there's just a lot of differences so i i can understand someone picking it up and expecting the shining part two to to kind of just be the same thing and it's not and i love it because it's not and it makes me think about what other stephen king short stories or books that that he could revisit for quote-unquote sequels um so I, I would say if, if you have a uh, story that you would like to see him revisit, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and I'll, I'll share it on the air because I think that that would be fun. Okay, guys, uh, that's all that I have for this week. Um, but make sure that you tune in next week as I woo, tackle a book that when I had first thought about doing a weekly Stephen King uh, podcast, the idea of reading this book again made me really hesitant about starting out, and that book is Mr. Mercedes, so um, make sure that you check it out, and uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next episode, where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Surprise for having learned how not to cry.